linguicide is a part of genocide. And if you remove the language, most likely you will erase the historic memory of people. I've always had a deep appreciation for language. I find myself so drawn to people who have a powerful command of words, able to speak eloquently and move others so easily with a simple phrase or compelling idea. Which leads me to today's guest, someone who shares this appreciation with me, but also has a perspective so different from my own on just how important language is in our society today. Kristina Pikmanets is a Ukrainian linguist, professor, and educational and cultural advisor at Sesame Workshop, the organization behind one of the most beloved children's television programs, Sesame Street. Christina believes that the richer our language is, the broader our thinking is. The more words we have in our head, the more we have the ability to become kinder, more socially aware members of society. But language can also be used against us, individually or collectively, in many different ways. As a linguist, Christina is maybe more aware of these potential impacts than others. Yet all of us have been on the receiving and giving sides of using language for good or in damaging ways. And in the world we live in today, it's more important than ever for all of us to better understand the power of our words. Welcome to Living Untitled. So, Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you. This is going to be fun. I so I want to start with just kind of some level setting, right? You you had a really interesting quote in an Atlantic article that was published this um well earlier this year and you said that language is the center of decision making. Around the language we form the social and cultural understanding of who we are. I just was wondering if you could elaborate on this a little bit more of what you're saying here. Why is language at the center of our decision-making and why is it so deeply tied with our social and cultural identity? So first of all, I'm a linguist and uh, everything for me is a language. I see the world through the language. I see the world through the letters and words and sentences. This is how I... uh, explain the world to myself with the help of the language and this is and i teach the language as well and i learn about the languages because i think that a language it's like a nerve system of a nation and the healthier it is the better nation feels because the language is closely connected to our ethnicity and ethnicity is closely connected to our nation so it's like one one body. I was born and raised in Ukraine, but last 16 years I've lived here in the United States. So I am a, I am a bicultural and a bilingual person. So I have right now I have two con- countries, two cultures and two languages that are inside of me. And uh I've I've always thought about these two words assimilation and integration to some people they might sound synonyms like similar by meaning but they're two different world wor- worlds not because they're two different words but they're two different worlds when you assimilate you lose something that has been given or was given to you by your parents or by your origin when you integrate you preserve what's rightfully is yours because it's in your blood, it's in your genes, 
it came to you from your parents, but you obtained something new, you learned something new. And these things, the preservance, and uh, when you obtain something, it provokes empathy, it provokes understanding, and it makes you a better person. That's why the language has a big part in it, because when you speak the language of other people, you understand how these people think, how they behave, what they cherish, what they are afraid of, what their strong and weak uh, sides are. And if you refuse their language, or if you think that only one language is possible, you limit yourself. And as a person, and your inner world is limited because language is connected to the culture. Language is connected to the values that we all share. I think as human beings, we all share the same values. And language, it's like a concrete that put the, all those bricks together. And I'm not talking about a language, which is, which is a specific system. But language is also connected to the social and uh, to the emotional world of every person. And like I said, the more languages you speak, the more cultures you understand, the better person you are. Describe this a little bit more as you're talking about you in terms of being bicultural. And I guess I kind of should preface this. I'm American. <laughs> I grew up here. I, I am I am just an American. And probably a lot of people that are listening to this come from more likely one world. Um, maybe people come from multiple. I don't know. Maybe people consider themselves bicultural as well or multicultural. But, you know, I come from one world. I have one sort of cultural background. So describe this to me in a way that helps me understand this and others as well. How does this show up in everyday circumstances for you coming from this bicultural background? I cherish things more. When you are a monocultural per person, and I have this experience of being a monocultural before I moved to the United States, I took everything for granted. My freedom, my uh, identity, my language, I mean, Ukrainian, the, the nation, it is there, it is there, good. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? It's just there, it's mine, kind of. Yeah. But once you move to a different place or the uh, conditions where you live make you move like war, crisis or anything, this is when you start cherishing what you had or what you have had, I don't know about the condition. And I, I heard a lot about, I'm an American, we feel comfortable we take it for granted. Once you move to a different country, uh, once you travel, you go to Europe or Asia, being an American, then you start feeling what it is to belong to a certain culture, to belong to a certain group of people. You belong somewhere. You have your people, you have your country, you have your land, you have your language, and you become proud of it. Because people, we really need this sense of belonging if it's a uh, micro or macro, like the bigger uh, understanding of belonging, but it is there. So I always talk about it and I will probably mention it now. People, please travel. <laughs> you will yeah. travel a lot, travel locally, travel to different countries, to different continents. You will rediscover yourself and you will see how many things you have to cherish and how many things you have to be grateful for, including the language that you speak, including the 
group of people that you belong to and the country and your own land because uh right now for us ukrainians it's a big question of preserving the identity and we are fighting for our not only our land because they're trying to take away from us but also something the things that we took for granted which is the identity who am i i'm a ukrainian I, because I have my language, because I have my big history, like long history, ancient history, I have my culture, which is ancient, and they're trying to take it away. So right now you cherish it triple times more than when everything was fine before the big war. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously I can hear, and rightly so, frankly, that that pride and like you said, that gratitude for where you come from uh, expressed here. And I want to go back to that word belonging that you mentioned, though, because being bicultural, coming from Ukraine, certainly feel that connection still to Ukraine. You probably feel a sense of strong belonging there to your people, your nation, like you said, the language. Do you feel some sense of belonging to America as well, having lived here for a significant period of time? And can you then feel a sense of belonging to both places at the same time? This is a very nice and interesting question. Uh, yes, I do. And sometimes I thought I felt I was in limbo because I, I was lost. Like, is this my land? Is this my land? Or like, what about the language? Because I, I started thinking using two languages and uh, I, I was really surprised. I, I also speak Spanish and, and Polish. I had a dream in Spanish. So what is it going on with me? Am I getting trilingual, tricultural? Is, is it normal? <laughs> what What's going on with me? But then, um, so I wasn't born in the United States. I took this culture uh, because I decided that I like it. I decided that I uh, cherish the values that this nation has. And I thought that they are completely friendly. They can be friends with my values that I cherish. And when I am in the United States, I think I feel more Ukrainian than American. But the moment I go back to Europe, to Ukraine, something happens and i'm more Ukra more american than ukrainian and this is like this is really weird and this happened and i was okay with that i uh this happened when i took i admitted i welcomed two languages and two cultures in me and this is how i talk to my kids because my kids were born here and this is how i talk to my friends who are third or fourth generations of ukrainian born here uh, talk about the identity because that that that's a serious question. It's like, what's inside you? Am I half and half? <laughs> Am I here? Am I there? It, it's hard when you don't don't know it. And uh, a friend of mine, he's a principal of the Ukrainian school here in New York, Ivan. Uh, he just said, you know what? I'm hyphenated, and I realized that I'm Ukrainian American. And I re when I realized that I was 18, I felt comfortable with that because I have to. I cherish two cultures, 
two countries, two languages. And that's okay. That is totally okay to be hyphenated, be respectful, and not take it for granted. Just appreciate it. And then you become richer. You become, you have those colors in you. You you become a rainbow. You can use those different colors. One probably red belongs to the American culture, but yellow belongs to the Ukrainian culture. And I combine it and I have it and I can share it with people. And this is beautiful. That last point you brought up, having these colors, having this richness to play with here. You know, we've talked a little bit about this before, and I love this. It makes me so excited. And so I had to sit and kind of ponder for myself. I'm like, where, you know, I I, I speak English and I, I've dabbled in other languages, but I speak English. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm fluent in anything else. But within the English language, I've tried to build a really robust vocabulary. Like I'm an avid reader, I've always been. I love culture and I love to just sort of immerse myself in the world of humanities and so on and so forth. And so I've tried to develop a really, really robust vocabulary. And so, you know, I admire people in the world that have these amazing vocabularies and cultural references from literature and, you know, often a grasp of words or phrases in other languages, you know, like you talk about being fluent in in many different languages, it gives you this even broader, it's sort of like a new dimension to your vocabulary that you get to play with. And so you talk about that richness, as you mentioned, in terms of what you can create with that and share with others, you know, so I, I want to kind of understand that a little bit more. What do you, what do you, what do these people like you and others sort of possess that uh, others are lacking or 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 maybe rather I should say you know what do these people possess that others can't fully grasp beyond just the words themselves when you talk about that because I think it's more than just you know let me learn this new word that shows up in my like daily word vocabulary chart it's you you gain something so much richer in that, that I think you're talking about. The language is closely, any language is closely connected to the mentality of the people that uh, speak that language. And in this, in its turn, it's also connected to the society. I, I, when I was reading about other languages, especially very old languages, tribal languages, they have the words that modern languages do not have. And these words mean appreciation of a plant, appreciation of a flower, appreciation of an insect. So we wouldn't even think about it because we take it for granted. It's just nature. Oh, come on. It's out there. But they have all their mentality is about being a human being and being thankful to nature. We just, for some reason, we, we uh, forgot about that emotion of gratitude, being grateful for something or to someone. And some of the languages, they have notions, like like I would even call them philosophical systems of how everything is connected between each other and the role of a human in it. And when you learn a new language, you don't only learn the physical words that you see, like a table is a table, a chair is a chair, love is love. Some of the notions have deeper meanings that probably your culture does not have. And if you get those meanings, because 
uh, it's really hard. You can translate that meaning to yourself using your own words, but you might not get what this whole idea is about. But once you get it, you you better understand those those other people, the level of your own possible aggression that is in you, like in every person, gets really, really low because understanding comes and understanding is closely connected to empathy. So probably if we traveled more, if we spoke more languages, or if we even learned more about other cultures, the world wouldn't be that aggressive as it is aggressive right now, because I couldn't even even think of a word to describe it. It's just the aggression. All right. You mentioned this part earlier, too, that individual languages, and we're kind of getting to this point in what you're saying here, you know, that we're, there's notions, there's these philosophical frameworks. I love that. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that concept and run with it. It's so beautiful. You know, but at, I, I, I want to kind of play the maybe it's asking it from the skeptic standpoint, maybe it's just sort of asking it from the intentionally naive standpoint, you know, but why, 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 why do individual languages matter so much? If we could just start over today in terms of building a human society, why why couldn't we live in a world where there's one universal language? This is called communism. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to live in this world. <laughs> this is called communism. Oh, I love it right there. That's the answer. Maybe not. No, I'm joking. But okay, well then fine. So how how can language and our shared values then, maybe let's talk about it in these terms, right? So you talked about, you know, you, you have different values coming from a bicultural background, right? Like in this blend of, of two worlds, so to speak, bringing different values together. So... If we were to again say, and I, <laughs> I sound like a communist again here. No, I don't know. Putting that aside, you know, but, but, you know, one language, one universal basic set of values, there's, it sounds wonderful on paper, maybe as a utopian concept. And again, I'm not saying I'm promoting this at all. I, I appreciate the richness of the world that we live in today. And the complexity of it. But for someone that's like, why doesn't everyone just speak the same language? You know, why can't we just all share the same values? You know, it, it, what do you say to them in these types of conversations? It's it's like, it's a big conversation on that. And uh, <laughs> well, I think I would be using the uh, examples. And an example will be uh, uh, the Ukrainian language. Well, I was born in the Western part of Ukraine that uh, was a kind of a Ukrainian speaking part of Ukraine. Uh, we, there was the Soviet Union there. There was all those, there were those atrocities that the communist regime was doing. Uh, well, my grandfather was killed uh, just because he was Ukrainian and because he wanted to have his nation and independent country, his language and his culture. My grandma was sent to Siberia because of these reasons. So there was something about the language and culture that was kind of um, dangerous to Soviets. And studying at the Ukrainian Ukrainian speaking school, I do not. Rem I was born in Soviet Union, but I do not remember a lot of Soviet Union. Soviet Union, as opposed to my, um, let's say, people of my age who were born on the. Eastern part of Ukraine, I don't 
I don't have that experience. My experience is mostly from the books and a little bit from the reality of the Soviet Union. And that was harsh. So when we talk about the language, the language was primarily the main and most important factor of risk for the Soviets, for Ukrainians. So for years, for 300 years, they were banning Ukrainian language. They were burning the books. Uh, Ukrainians were not allowed to speak Ukrainian or to, to go to Ukrainian schools, uh, to write in Ukrainian if you are Ukrainian author, you were supposed to write in Russian. So there was something about the language that they knew was pretty dangerous. But what they were saying, it was like um, Russian is the language and all the other languages are not languages. Consequently, people who spoke those languages were not nations. They didn't have any ethnicity. All their ethnicities, was like, oh, it's something, it was something archaic, something not cool anymore, because the cool one is the empirical one, imperial one, I'm sorry. So we, we didn't learn uh, about this at school. We didn't study anything about the languages and Ukrainian versus Russian, even though it was a Ukrainian-speaking school. I didn't know anything about the language and what was going on with it. Probably. Up, up until I finished the university and I'm a linguist. We didn't, we didn't learn anything about that. So then I bumped into that book that is called Linguacite. When I started Googling what the Linguacite is in different languages, the notion was differently explained. If you Google Linguacite in English, it will say it means the death of language because of a couple of reasons, economic, political, or um, immigrational. When you Google it in Ukrainian, the linguocyte means the intentional destruction of the language by a different, like by, by a powerful language. So it's an intentional destruction of the language. And I was wondering about that. So was there a linguocyte or people just decided to refuse speaking their language? So what was going on? And I started reading that book and it's, it was the combination of all the protocols from 1930s. This is when it all started. And it's really hard to read that terminology, even if it was in, in Ukrainian. It's really hard to understand what they meant by it. But there was one that just totally, sorry, freaked me out. Like, really. It was just one sentence that explained this whole idea and the whole understanding of probably Russians treating Ukrainians like this. I tried to translate it. I'm not sure if it's going to make a lot of sense of it, but I'll try to read it. So it was a quotation since 1933. Like language, there was a language conference. They didn't know what to do with the Ukrainian language because they couldn't do anything with people. There was Holodomor, so they killed them by starvation, but they still are there and it's a risk for the Soviet Union. So here's the sentence. The Ukrainian language got disconnected from the general process of language construction in the USSR. It got disconnected from the Russian language, a language of proletariat. And this very verb got disconnected. How dare they? got disconnected. This sentence explained so much to me. So obviously, Ukrainians did not want to assimilate. They wanted to have their own way, cultural, uh, social way, 
language way, but the Russians or USSR, the communist people, did not like it. For them, it was risky, dangerous, because it was the it was this thing that prohibited them to build the communism and class struggle. So this whole idea for them, the idea of existing of some other nation, ethnicity, that wants to speak their language. Sure. Why would they want to speak their language? There is another one. They want to live on their land. Why do they want to do this? This is our land. It's all our land. So they refuse to speak the Russian language. They refuse to be part of Soviet Union. So you know what? Let us destroy them. So they are starting to use the language. And what they're starting to do, well, they start to use the language as the weapon of destruction. And what they do, they start from ruining the written language, meaning the academic language, literature, all the notions, the uh, professional terminology, Ukrainian professional terminology, the words that were uh, developing through ages in a normal way, phonetics and borrowed words and international words, everything was there. They destroyed it within one year by burning all the dictionaries and banning all the terminology. Yeah. And you told me before they go really, they, they were very intentional in this work too. So far, yeah, so far as to remove specific suffixes or prefixes and so on and so forth. I, I want you to dive into that part because it's so fascinating to me how far they were willing to go. I didn't know anything about that. It was given to Ukrainians as, oh, come on, your language is so rustic, rural. It's not cool to speak that language. If you speak that language, you cannot find a job. You cannot be promoted. So you better speak the normal language. And this is how they still call it speak normally. When, when when they hear Ukrainian speaking Ukrainian, they say, oh, speak normally. What do you mean by that? I use the normal language. So, so number one was the destruction of the terminology, the academic terminology and dictionaries. Number two, the Ukrainian word formation was twisted. So every language has its historical and cultural ways of being formed suffixes and prefixes and roots and change of consonants, it's normal. So before 1930s, they were just banning the language. In uh, 1930, they, 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 they went even far. They started twisting the roots, twisting the sounds and suffixes. So all like, you know, the languages, they have groups. So Slavic group, Roman, German groups, all these languages, they share some similarities because they belong to one kind of one root of languages, which is normal. It's like brothers and sisters, siblings, but they're different people, totally different people. So what they started doing after that, they they started changing all the words. Let's say we have a synonymic uh, line. So they would take away all the words that were not sound, they didn't sound like Russian. They called them archaic, nationalistic. There were two words that they always use. So nationalistic, it's like Jesus Christ. It's the ticket to Siberia, if you're lucky. And if you're called nationalistic, worst case scenario, you're gone next day. 
like disappeared. So they took away all the words that did not look or they were not similar to Russians. And believe me or not, there, there, is, there was a group of people who was working on that. There were lists, I've seen those lists of words that were called nationalistic. So the same happened to the endings and the conjugations because Ukrainian language shares um, similar conjugations to Russian and other Slavic languages. So they, they, they changed the conjugation, especially in genitive case. So it's, it sounds and looks like, like Russian. Ukrainian ABC has two very peculiar letters. The one, it's called Yi. It looks like I, only has two, do two dots. And there is a very, there is one word in the English language with this letter Yi. It's called naive. And it, it's literally spe spelled with this Yi letter with two dots. So they banned this letter from the dictionaries. We were not supposed to use that letter they banned two more letters that the Russian language did not have. So they removed, they destroyed the terminology. So the terminology that Ukrainians are using right now, even though it's a borrow, they are borrowed words because they come from different parts of the world, they this terminology came to the Ukrainian language through the Russian phonetic system. So they do not sound uh ukrainian just the very sound they it, it, it's different and right now ukrainian linguists are trying to return those the, the terminology back but people people freak out like what is it what is that sounding uh and they at first people oppose like we don't know what it is we we have never used it and then when you ask a very simple question ask your grandma well, what was she using? What did she say? Most likely the grandma would sound very similar to what the linguists are offering right now. So Ukrainians are getting back to their roots because genocide, linguicide is a part of genocide. And if you remove the language, most likely you will erase the historic memory of people and this is what happened to Ukrainians in 1932 and 33 uh, by means of Holodomor, the artificial famine where from four to seven million Ukrainians died from starvation. And at that time, Ukrainian was the breadbasket of Europe. So it was it's not it wasn't the it wasn't just the natural disaster. It was the artificial famine where people died through, and this is the worst death, to die from hunger. So that part of Ukraine, that's the eastern part of Ukraine, by means of Holodomor, by means of this really, really horrible uh, death, they almost got, almost got their memory, ethnical, cultural, national erased. Because after that, people stopped speaking the language, they were afraid to to die. They were afraid that their uh, loved ones can die because they speak Ukrainian. And the weird experiment was done. I think I was, I don't remember who I was sharing this with. I, I it, it came to me, the realization came to me once again. So the Western part of Ukraine had, was fighting a lot, severely fighting for their for their independence. It was Germans and Russian from two sides. But 
that part of Ukraine was never broken. It was really, really twisted and destroyed, but mentally wasn't broken. So the memory is still there. The feelings and emotions are still there and the language is still there. We're holding on to it. So the Western part of Ukraine, the one that is closer to the neighbors, was so destroyed, was so paralyzed that they refused their language and the memory. To the extent that the, there was a lady, a journalist, she was talking to survivals, the Holodomor survivals. They are like in their 80s or 90s, 90s right now. Back then, they were like really little children. It's like, what do you think about that? Um, the government back then, about Stalin. And all of them, all of them will justify them, saying, well, you know what? The, the time was like this. It was just a crisis everywhere, not only here. It wasn't Stalin. None of them would say, no, he's a murderer. He did this to us. So to what extent the first tool of destruction language was developed into destruction of the culture and memory. So it is totally erased. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it obviously, <laughs> no, it's just, it, you know, it's like, I, 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 this statement isn't to make light of the situation, right? But it's so fascinating to understand how connected, and thank you for sharing this, all of this information, because it's just fascinating to understand how connected language is to culture and identity, like you said, and how erasing or attempting to erase a language can erase the memory, the sort of comprehension of your own experience in the world and your own sense of self and place in the world. And once this happens, God forbid this happens to you as a person or to you as a nation, you are empty. You're a beggar. You will you will be ready to, to stick to anything that will give you the sense of belonging. That's why I started from being grateful to having two. Because I I can belong to two and I two cultures and two languages I can think as yeah, I'm part of it. So let's think about people who lost it, unwillingly lost it. And this is sad. So I, I want to come back to Americans who are monolingual, say, that's a lot. That's a lot because you have the language, you have the culture, and you have the ethnicity that you, you can be proud of and you can be you can belong to. And as you as Ukrainians, it's it's a really new uh topic for us. It's a new world for us because for years we were not allowed not only allowed to talk about it because russians were always speaking they knew the truth they knew how it is supposed to be they would tell the whole world this is how it is the, our culture our language i'm happy for you for having it let us talk let us say something give us we have the right to have the right <laughs> have the right to speak we have the right to think what we want and we have the right to live on our land and respect we have the right and we're obliged to respect others 
what's wrong with you. So right now we are at the stage of admitting, no, I would say realizing, learning and admitting of what has happened to us for those 300 years, probably. The next stage would be, yeah, the next stage is admitting. Yeah, we, this is what has happened to us. And then well, what, what are we going to do with that? How are we going to overcome this trauma? And I think that the one one of the ways of how to overcome is, is to talk, to talk about it and have conversations. And um, we are, I would say, victims in that, but I don't want us to be called emotional victims. That's why, oh, your guys, you have uh, lived through so many things. That's why you're so emotional. No, I don't think it's the right thing to say. It's just we now we need our time to talk it out, not only for ourselves, but to the whole world. So the whole world could see the other side as well and make conclusions uh, by their uh, on, on their own. Yeah, yeah. One thing that you've talked to me about before is as part of this, and I think coming uh, as a linguist into this conversation, you're actively reclaiming this language that has been lost. And this, that is in and of itself, if we talked about how language can be used as a weapon, as you've done for us, you are also focusing on how language can be a tool to rebuild uh, in this time by reclaiming that language that has been lost. And it's almost an act of rebellion in a way, but I think it's a it's an act of... It's more than just preservation, right? You're because I think you truly are in a way rebuilding something in a sense. I'm not sure I can agree on uh with you on that because Ukrainians for the majority of Ukra the Ukrainian language for the majority of Ukrainians has never been lost. It's been it's been spoken for it, it has never stopped. It's, it has never been a forgotten language. This is my native language. This is the native language of my parents and grand, great parents. We never spoke a different language. So it is there. For another part of Ukraine, the eastern part of Ukraine, the, the two generations, I would say three generations, were made to lose the language. So right now, these people, they always felt there was something there, but they never realized how much they probably missed and they're coming back to it right now they refuse to speak russian and they are i'm not sure if it's a nice word they're digging inside them finding their lost identity because most likely they are great parents and great parents they they did speak ukrainian and so right now i would say it's just the reconnecting and family reunion rather than reclaiming the language we always there, there wasn't even a day where even a Russian, Russian-speaking Ukrainian would say, uh, uh, "No, Ukrainian is not a language; it, it's lost." No, it's there. Everyone understood it. It's just the spoken language, the language of power. I don't know the language of uh, the city was the Russian language because it it was imposed that way. If you didn't accept it, you would have been killed, and not only you, but your whole family. So it was forced upon a lot of the Ukrainians. So 
right now it's I would say it's a cultural and language family reunion right now right now that's going on and um when we talk about language we talked about language as a destruction power right how a language one language can destroy the whole nation I would say but language is also the power that that can connect people and again why because language is connected to values and language is connected to the mentality and language is connected to religions and I'm a religious person but I probably do not like I more believe in God rather than some books if it's okay to say so because oh, he's definitely somewhere there and he told us that those things that make us happy are out there it's respect it's love it's friendship it's understanding it's mental and physical comfort we don't have to pay money for this right and i think all the nations all the ethnicities religions and cultures they share this core of of values right do not kill do not steal do not uh do not say lies it's everywhere we just if we find this language and it's not a spoken it's not a verbal language if we find this language of communication and understanding i i want to live my life in my house with my friends and my family i think you want it too right so let's communicate the way that we are all happy and i think the world has forgotten about those core values that we all share that we all were given for free that we all take for granted because we want more and we always want something that costs money <laughs> very true yes yes you know i thank you for pushing back on me on that because i think this is the beauty in having this conversation with you versus me just absorbing and processing it as an American, what's happening in the rest of the world. There's much more nuance. There's much more context that you can offer. It's not as absolute as I think we often see conveyed in the media. And this is certainly no attack to media at large. I think we get enough pushback in many ways. I'm a little pro very pro-media, but many are doing their job as well as they can. But nonetheless, like you can only share so much from an outsider's perspective. You can only gain so much also from being an outsider. So I appreciate the, the context and the nuance that you're able to share as coming at it from this being directly personal and having a direct impact on you and your life and you kind of living this from the inside and being willing to share that with the rest of us on the outside. You know, we, we talked a little bit about the complexity of the world we're living in today. Um, you've kind of mentioned this to me before in conversation, you know, there's a lot of different emotions that you're still processing and in some cases still trying to put the language to the emotion. You mentioned something that I want to just come to in this um, from a past conversation that we had that, and I think this goes to a little bit of what you were saying as well for a lot of Ukrainian people right now. You're still in that phase of trying to, you can't even Process. come to, yes, thank you, processing where you are. Uh, being a linguist, why is it so often that the words come later? 
Uh, this is how it works, unfortunately, in, in, in our world that first we feel, well, probably first we see something, then we, we start feeling, then our inner triggers say, is it good or bad? How do I feel? And then again, this now this is sociocultural linguistics comes inside. As a nation, you want to verbalize it to yourself. Let's say, uh, my my own um observation is Americans as a nation, they need to put in words, they need to have sentences of almost every emotion and feeling that they see, they they need to have it verbalized because understanding comes from the written or spoken words the verbal language. And this is the mentality of the Americans. This is how Americans are. And they have the right to be so. So people who would like to have business with Americans or have better communication with Americans, they need to know this um, peculiarity of the American people. The Americans need clarity, verbal clarity in any language, but it has to be verbalized. That's why we have so many rules describing this or that or this <laughs> or over here. Sometimes you get lost with those rules, but this is the seeking of understanding. And this is normal for Americans. For Ukrainians, I think Ukrainians are more a cordial nation than, rather than ratio nation. So it has to be felt first. Oh, I feel it's good. It's good. I cannot explain it. What is it that I like? But as long as I feel it, I will take it. But when we have the situation like this in the situation of war, crisis, and severe aggression of Russians, we feel that something is going on. We feel that something is that is, it's extremely horrible. It's not humane. Our brain cannot connect to it and we are lost because the emotion that we feel is the most horrible emotion. And I think the whole nation, maybe like some some really smart and cool Ukrainian intellectuals are able to verbalize it, to put it into words, but not the nation as a whole. My feeling, again, it's a very subject, subjective point of view because it's my point of view. From the nation of teenagers, we become a nation of adults who are ready to take the responsibility, who know what they are, who know what they want, who know what they want, what who know what they want to do with their future, how they want to live. We feel it, but we can't put it into words at that point. And it comes in every part of the society, Society, let's say, how do we talk to veterans? How do we talk to people who lost their families? But we are from the bunch of people who, thank God, did not lose anyone. How do we talk about the experiences that we have never felt? How do we talk? And those experiences are the most horrible ones. How do we talk to people who who's seen those atrocities that Russian did in all, all around Ukraine, especially Eastern part. How do we sympathize? Do we sympathize to these people? Do we have the right to sympathize if we don't have the experience like this? So all these questions are out there. So, and we are still thinking 
And in social media, so you could see lots of fights, verbal fights. You don't know what you're saying. How dare you? You have no right. Only these people can talk about it. And at one point, everyone gets scared and kind of stagnates and observes what's going on. And this is, I think, when the conversations, like conversations with the societies should take place. And at this point, I have a feeling, again, it's my point of view, that there was there was a room with a bunch of teenagers. It was called Europe. And at one point, something really, really bad happened. And one group of teenagers realized that they are adults in the room right now, but they don't know what to do with this responsibility yet because they have other teenagers that kind of have the brains, have the power. They realize something is going on, something not good. They realize they have to protect each other, but they don't know how. So... Until we figure it out, we cannot become responsible adults in our homes and homes meaning collective Europe and collective world. And conversation, language comes in, but not English or Ukrainian or any other language, but human language that brings values and understanding. Yes. Yes. <sighs> <sighs> Ooh, it's so good. You know, I mean, look, you kind of answered what I wanted to be my last question here because, you know, we're all about community on this show, community matters. And I think you and I certainly share that as well. I mean, so much of what you're talking about here, belonging and identity and respect and all these shared values, this is all about supporting community, whether that's individual, smaller communities, whether that's thinking on this macro scale to global community. And so, you know, I kind of wanted to ask you that about like, how do we build community? How do we continue to cultivate mutual respect in a world where maybe we, we're we seeing more differences and similarities in a lot of ways? And, you know, one example of that is, you know, not sharing the same language, but you kind of talked about it here, that it's, it's, it's about promoting the human language that is these shared values, these core sort of values that we can't lose sight of that we need to ensure are still present in the way that we act and the way that we show up and the way that we represent others around us every single day. It's only probably this century that we humans started talking about uh, empathy. We haven't verbalized it yet. We haven't talked it out in our schools. We haven't talked it out to ourselves. Why would I empathize rather than sympathize? What's the difference between that? If we figure out it for ourselves, we can teach our kids to empathize, not sympathize. But empathize, because sympathy is not, I think, to me, sympathy is not a good thing. Uh, but empathy is a difference. So empathy includes understanding, to me, and respect. These are, these are two things that we should always keep in mind while talking to different people, to other than us people, to people from different cultures, to people from different religions. Every single human being has the right to have the right. And not a single human being has the right to be disrespectful of this. You might not like something, that's your right. You might not like someone, you might not like someone's uh, deeds. You can say it out, you can do something to protect, to foresee. You can do something about that, but you don't have the right to disrespect. I still cannot understand why so many people kill each other 
because of religion. We're still people. Like, what if I convert tomorrow? Would you like to kill me too? Why, why would you do this? Did you give the life to me that you are taking it away? And if we learn to understand, if we just remember for the rest of the, our lives that other people also have the right to have the right and respect it, then probably I hope we can change the situation for better just a little bit. But I'm not sure. It's just my thinking. Like I said before, I'm with all, with everything that has happened, bad things, really, really bad things, horrible things happen. I'm still thinking. And well, I'm not a philosopher. I'm just a linguist. And I talk to people. Uh, I'm just a human being. And this need of verbalizing it uh, is, is very urgent right now. And verbalizing brings communication because we can communicate with the help of our languages. Well, Christina, I'm grateful for your thinking. I'm grateful for the words you're using and for the conversations that you're willing to have. And certainly just very grateful for this one that we've had today. So thank you. I'm, I'm really grateful that you uh, had a conversation with me that you gave me uh, the option to speak. You you gave me a chance to speak and I highly appreciate it. Uh, all those ideas that I've just, I've expressed there, my thoughts, my thinking, they're very raw ideas because I, we, I'm still thinking, I'm still learning, I'm still trying to understand by reading in different languages, reading different thoughts, uh, and I know a lot of people are trying to do a very same thing to understand, because like I said before, understanding brings uh, empathy. Yes, I couldn't so agree you. more. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.